The Nature of Evil by John Wickey. A few years ago, when my daughter was still home, after school, she told me about a conversation she had with a group of kids. These were religious kids, church-going kids, and they were having a conversation about what constituted serious sin. My daughter named homosexuality as a serious sin, but the kids at the table disagreed. The response she got from the kids, from church-going, professing Christian kids, was that while homosexuality might be named a sin in the Bible, we shouldn't really judge it like sin today. Even if it is sin, they thought of it not as serious sin, and they said it's up to God to judge anyway, not us, so it should just be treated as personal choice. One young man, the spokesman who voiced the majority opinion, basically dismissed homosexuality as trivial, and then he went on to name what he saw as a serious sin, cursing. He named cursing. He explained that the words we use, the way we communicate with others, crude or judgmental language, could cause offense to others, and that, to him, was serious sin. So, to this young man, and please realize this young man was very active in what most would consider a very conservative Christian church in a very conservative Mennonite community. To this young man, cursing is a worse sin than homosexuality. Homosexuality isn't really sin at all to him, but saying inoffensive word is. And what he was getting at was this. In his mind, offending a homosexual with words of rebuke for his lifestyle was more of a sin than the homosexuality itself. This young man lacked a biblical perspective on sin. I'm sure he was not aware of it, but God's law, in Leviticus 19.17 specifically, charges us with rebuking our neighbor for sin. We are to do it in love, that's part of the law as well, but we are charged with rebuking sin. To withhold rebuke for a sin like homosexuality is actually a sin in and of itself. No, this young man lacked a biblical perspective on sin. Yet, sadly, this young man exemplifies modern Christianity. The fact is that the average Christian today cannot reliably identify what is sin and what is not. They no longer look to God's law to divine right and wrong. And because of that, they don't understand the nature of evil. They have a hard time recognizing evil, which leaves them vulnerable, unanchored, and unrepentant. Modern Christianity has lost its connection with the law of God, and that is why our society faces the crisis it does today. The disintegration of our culture that's happening all around us, the moral disintegration, the demographic disintegration, the economic disintegration, all of it is a result of our separation from God. And make no mistake, there is no fixing this without a return to God. You know, our nation is $31 trillion in debt. That's $93,000 per person. Every single man, woman, and even every single child in this nation, from the day he is born, owes a $93,000 debt. That is their portion of the national debt. We can't fix that. I don't care what policies some candidates offer. I don't care how good a man the people they choose to elect. That debt is an unavoidable crisis just waiting for its time to happen. There is no way out of that. Judgment is coming. 
Demographically, we are also headed for judgment. Even without the wave of migrants coming across the border, the last census showed a 300% increase in mixed-race Americans. Mixed-race Americans now constitute 10% of the population, one out of every 10 people in this nation. And for the first time ever, the census showed an actual decline in the white population of this nation. God's children are dying out, and that isn't getting fixed. Whites already make up only half the population, and that is also skewed heavily toward the older ages. The average white person is 44 years old, at the tail end of childbearing years. The average minority in America is 31, right in the middle of childbearing years. The majority of children of this nation are going to be non-white. The future of America is already that of a non-white nation. At this point, it's irreversible, and that means this nation is changing. You aren't going to keep the nation we had if you change the people that make it up. As this nation fills with Mexicans, we will end up with a nation like Mexico, not the nation of our ancestors. I don't care what people try to do about it, judgment is coming. And morally, we are disintegrating as well. Morality is the basis of civilization. Things like marriage, modesty, things like gender roles, these are the things that define how we interact with each other. When a group of people all hold a set of similar ideals, it binds them together in society. It creates civilization. But our society is going every direction at once. People no longer hold a common set of ideals. There is no common moral framework, no common foundation for our society, and there's no fixing that anymore. Judgment is coming. There is no fixing the path to destruction this culture is on. The only refuge we have is with our God. The only path through the gauntlet of destruction the future holds is through our relationship with God. Judgment is coming. It's time to get right with God. Because He is the only one who can get us through this. That's why I want to talk today a little about the law. I want to talk about the purpose of God's law, how people became separated from God's law, and the impact our understanding of the law has on our repentance and upon our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Take a moment, if you would, and think about the law of God. Have you ever noticed just how different God's law is compared to laws in our culture? If you look at how laws are written in our culture, you will see some regular characteristics. Our culture strives to write laws that very clearly define what you are allowed to do and what you are not. And our laws also clearly specify a punishment. For example, I picked a random law from my home state of Indiana. Indiana Code 9-20-1-3 deals with the power of local authorities to close roads. It reads like this. Section 3. A. Except as provided in subsection E, local authorities with respect to highways under their jurisdiction may, by ordinance, 1. Prohibit the operation of vehicles upon any highway, or 2. Impose restrictions as to the weight of vehicles to be operated upon the highway for a total period not to exceed 90 days in any one year whenever any highway by reason of deterioration. And it goes on, with 425 words divided into 11 subsections, very clearly defining what is permitted and what is not concerning road closures, 
and the specific punishment for violation is a Class C infraction. That's law in our culture. Precisely defined limits, precisely defined punishment. Now, compare that to God's law. Exodus 20 verse 12 reads, Honor thy father and thy mother. That's the fourth commandment, one of God's laws. Six words compared to 425. Even though it addresses a broader subject of greater importance than closing roads. God's law sounds different from our law, doesn't it? If laws were written in the United States like the fourth commandment is written, lawyers would have a fit. To be law in our culture, we would need a definition of what it means to honor. What exactly is required and what exactly is banned? We would need a definition of the words father and mother. Does it include adoptive parents? What about step-parents? What about non-custodial biological parents? What about step-parents after divorce? Are they still considered father and mother? And we would certainly need a punishment defined for violating the law. The fourth commandment, as written in scripture, could never be law in our culture. Neither could most of God's law. There are no penalties listed in the food laws. That just doesn't work for law in our culture. Leviticus 19 forbids bearing a grudge against your neighbor. What exactly is prohibited by that? Tailbearing is against God's law. What exactly is the definition of tailbearing? Lawyers would be having coronaries trying to figure the details out. Why? That's because God's law is structured fundamentally different than the laws of our culture. And there's a reason for that. God's law is designed with a different purpose in mind than our laws are. In our culture, law is structured around a principle called the rule of law. Our law clearly defines the limit of permitted behavior, so the law itself can act as a mediator of our disputes. If someone harms you, you can point to the law to show precisely where he crossed the line, and the law itself then specifies the remedy. The law itself resolves the dispute. The purpose for this is to protect our rights. Law in our culture is like a castle wall, facing outward, defending our rights against others. But God's law is different. The 19th Psalm is a description of God's law. Verses 7 and 8 say this, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, think about that for a second. The law of the Lord converts the soul. It makes the simple wise. It enlightens us. That's how scripture describes the law. That's how King David, who wrote these words in the Psalms, thought of the law. It converts us. It enlightens us. But is that how people think of law in our culture? When I read Indiana Code 9-20-3-1, did it convert your soul? Did it make you wise? Did it enlighten you? Of course not, and no one in our culture expects it to. We don't expect enlightenment from our law. That's not how we use law. Our culture's laws are designed to protect us. I see 9-20-whatever is designed to protect the people's right to travel by limiting government's rights to close a road. It's not designed to teach us. 
It's not designed to convert our soul, but God's law is. God's law is designed to teach us. It's designed to make us wise. It's designed to enlighten us. It's designed to convert our soul. The purpose of God's law is not to protect our rights. The purpose of God's law is to teach us our responsibilities. Instead of detailed limits that protect our rights, God's law shows us broad principles that teach us our responsibilities. Let's take a look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The Bible tells us the law serves as our schoolmaster. Its purpose is to bring us to Christ. As Psalm says, the law converts our soul. God's law is written with a very different purpose in mind than man's law is. Now, the reason that's important is, growing up in our Christian culture, modern Christians bring cultural expectations with them when they read God's law. This is one of the things that separate modern Christians from God's law. This is one of the primary reasons modern Christians reject God's law. Consider this example of how it happens. Numbers 30 is the law concerning vows and commitments. In verse 13, concerning the vow of a wife, it says, Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul. Her husband may establish it, or her husband may make it void. What do you think goes through the mind of a modern Christian when they read this law? They expect laws to protect rights. That's what they expect, but that's not what this law does. When a modern Christian reads this law, the thought that likely goes through his mind is, this law doesn't protect women's rights. This law does not protect rights. It actually seems to take rights away. So this law appears flawed to a modern Christian. It doesn't do what they expect law to do. It feels wrong to them. It looks like bad law. Consider Deuteronomy 22 verse 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Again, what goes through the mind of a modern Christian as he reads this law? They might think it's good advice. A lot of Christians might think it's something they would like to do to follow themselves. But it doesn't seem like something that should be law. As a law, it doesn't protect rights. It doesn't protect freedoms. Instead, as a law, these verses limit choice. It limits how we're allowed to dress. To our culture, this law is a law that does not do what law is supposed to do. To the mind of someone accustomed to our cultural view of law, it feels wrong. And it's not just gender laws. Biblical food laws are another set of laws that feel wrong to people today. In our culture, there are laws governing food, but in our culture, food laws are designed to protect the consumer by limiting unsafe practices of food preparation companies. In our culture, for example, food laws limit how a meat packing plant operates. We don't expect law to limit what we are allowed to eat. To our culture, biblical food laws just seem inappropriate. They seem restrictive. You're free to follow them if you want. They might work as great health suggestions, 
but people in our culture typically reject biblical food laws as law. The same goes for laws requiring festival observance, or for God's law prohibiting religious worship of false gods, or for so much of God's law. God's law just seems like bad law to modern Christians. God's law feels wrong to modern Christians, because they harbor a different cultural expectation for law. That's why modern Christians reject God's law. God's law doesn't match their man-centered expectations of good and evil. God's law just feels oppressive to them, not liberating. This perception of God's law as oppressive is the principal reason modern Christianity runs away from the Old Testament law every chance they get. Whether they say God's law only applies to the Jews, or they say the New Covenant did away with the law, or they say the law was made only for ancient time, doesn't matter. Whatever their justification is, the fundamental reason modern Christians go down the road of abandoning the law in the first place is because they view God's law as harsh and oppressive. They want to get away from it, so they find a way to abandon it. Let us think about oppressive. It's common today to view God's law as oppressive. At the same time, most people think of the society we live in as free. <laughs> What's truly ironic is just how reversed these two perceptions are from reality. God's law isn't oppressive, but man's law most certainly is. People talk all the time about how the Bible has so many rules, so many rules in the Bible. Let me point something out. Every year of release, Israel was supposed to read the law at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Bible is about 1,200 pages long. The first five books, the books of the law, contain about 250 pages, not all of which is actually law. When you specifically count the laws in the Law of Moses, there are about 613 laws. That's 613 laws in the Bible what scholars have found in a specific counting. Now, think about the laws in our country. We write laws through bills. There was a bill that went through Congress that was 5,593 pages. Remember, the Bible is only 1,200 pages. This bill alone was five times as long as the entire Bible. Can you imagine sitting down and reading all the laws we're supposed to keep in this country, as they did in ancient Israel? Do you know how many laws there are in the United States today? The answer is, too many to count. And I mean that literally. Too many to count. People have tried to count. There have actually been studies commissioned to count all the laws in America. They tried, but they failed. They literally couldn't count them all. Between all the federal laws, state laws, local laws, municipal and county laws, and on top of those, the different regulatory agencies, IRS, EPA, FDA, you can go on and on with the alphabet soup for a long time. Between all the different sets of laws we are subjected to in this country, even well-funded, organized, concerted efforts to count them all have failed. Of course, oppression isn't just about the number of laws. Oppression occurs when laws interfere with justice, when laws unjustifiably interfere with our daily life. That's when oppression occurs. Again, however, when you look for oppression, 
Do you see it in God's law, or are you more likely to see it in man's law? Surely you've heard of incidents where a child's lemonade stand was shut down by public health officials, or when a criminal, who was clearly guilty, was let free, because the police failed to read him his Miranda rights. The laws we live with in our society frequently interfere with justice rather than produce justice. Let me give you a few examples of incidents that actually happened under our laws. In Washington, D.C., it's illegal to eat on the subway. That's a law. Well, if you're ever there, be careful. During an undercover enforcement operation, police actually arrested, searched, and handcuffed a 12-year-old girl for eating a single french fry on the subway. She was transported to a processing center where she was booked, fingerprinted, and detained. It was ridiculous. But the case was not just dismissed. The case made it all the way to the U.S. Court of Appeals, where Justice John Roberts presided at the time. And yes, that's the same John Roberts that now heads the Supreme Court. The worst part, though, is Justice Roberts sided with the police, upholding the arrest of a 12-year-old girl for eating a single french fry. While he called the policies that led to the arrest foolish, he said that's not the question. It was the law. So he upheld the rest. Justice Roberts was not concerned with justice. Justice Roberts actually upheld a law that he knew went against justice. That's oppression. In Palo Alto, California, a 61-year-old grandmother dealing with late-stage breast cancer was unable to trim her hedges to the satisfaction of code enforcement. It only took a few months before she was arrested, criminally charged, and labeled a flight risk. She eventually was forced to plea a bargain to avoid jail time. Jail time! For not trimming her hedges. That's oppression. Abuses from the IRS, the TSA, or the EPA, we could go on and on. You can point to farmers who lose the use of their land to EPA mandates. You can point to bakers and photographers forced to serve at gay weddings. You can point to businesses forced to employ people just to meet federally imposed racial quotas. Right now, you can point to masks and vaccine mandates. Our laws certainly do interfere with justice at times. Our laws certainly are oppressive at times. But when you look at God's law, what do you see? Read Hebrews chapter 10. If you take the time to actually look, if you read scripture without our cultural preconceptions, you don't see oppression in God's law. In Hebrews 10, it's a passage that exemplifies the misinterpretation prevalent when people approach scripture with the preconceptions of our culture. Hebrews 10.28 reads, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. What do most modern Christians see here? They say, see, no mercy. Moses' law had no mercy. That's what they expect from God's law. So that's what they see. But read the next verse. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? Sore punishment. Do you see that? It says there is sore punishment now. Sore punishment under Christ? He that despised Moses' law died without mercy, but when we sin under the new covenant, we are actually worthy of harsher punishment 
than existed under the law of Moses? Now, no one thinks of the new covenant as harsh and oppressive because it isn't. The new covenant is not harsh or oppressive. But then again, neither is the law of God. Consider Joshua 5 verse 3 through 7, a passage that contradicts the modern impression of God's law. God's law is not oppressive. It never has been oppressive. Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, reads, And Joshua made him sharp knives, and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt, that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way, after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. And their children, whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not circumcised them by the way. This passage struck me when I read it. The modern tendency is to think of harsh enforcement under Mosaic law. No mercy. Yet, that's not what scripture actually says happened. For 40 years in the wilderness, the nation of Israel didn't circumcise their children. They had been given the law. The law commands circumcision, but most of the people simply didn't do it. And the striking thing is this. Moses didn't do anything about it. Moses didn't rigidly enforce it. He actually did not enforce circumcision at all. Nobody did it, and nothing happened to them, from Moses at least. When the Israelites were finally entering the Promised Land, Moses said this, Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his eyes. Moses said that in the Promised Land, this has to end. They could not keep doing whatever they wanted. In the wilderness, the people were all basically doing their own thing. Moses had a hard time getting the people to obey God's law. Yet even with all the disobedience, his enforcement of the law was merciful rather than oppressive. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 14 through 17. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. That's tabernacles, the feast we keep in the fall. In Nehemiah, they read in the law how we should dwell in booths at tabernacles. Drop to verse 17. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the day of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. Since the days of Joshua? This is Israel in the promised land. Even though staying in booths for tabernacle was a part of the law, no one had kept that law all through the time of the judges, or all through the kings, nor did they keep it under Samuel, or David, or Josiah, or Hezekiah. They were all good leaders, yet none of these leaders did anything about it. The law of God was never harshly enforced like laws about not eating food in the subway are harshly enforced in our society. People didn't suffer under a heavy hand of God's law. Contrary to popular impression today, 
The ancient Israelites did not live under God's law like they were sitting in a Catholic schoolroom with a nun standing over their shoulder just waiting to wrap their knuckles with a ruler for the slightest infraction. Sure, there was enforcement, there were executions even, such as the execution of Achan for idolatry. There were executions under God's law when it was necessary, just as we have executions today for certain heinous crimes. But God's law never stood in the way of justice like ours often does today. God's law never restricted people's lives with no justification like ours often does today. God's law was not oppressive like ours is today. And when we look a little deeper into the purpose of God's law, we can see why. Matthew 22 verse 36 is a well-known and actually well-liked passage. Yet, almost none of the modern church world actually understands or believes what is said so simply here. It reads, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The modern church fails to understand that last line. They do not believe it, even though it is a simple, straightforward statement. On these two commandments, on loving God and loving your neighbor, hang all the law and the prophets. That's a simple statement that Jesus made. All the law is built on love. But the modern church doesn't believe that. Jesus tells us that the law is built on love. All the law is built on love. All the law. Every last commandment. God built on two principles. Love God and love your neighbor. Every law in God's law is an expression either of what it means to love God or how to love your neighbor. That's the lesson the law teaches. That's the lesson that converts our soul. We are supposed to learn from God's law what love means. Learning that lesson brings us to Christ. That's the purpose of God's law. As a second witness to that point, let's read Galatians 5 verse 14. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Or you could also go to Romans 13 verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no will to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Do not kill, do not steal. Do not lie and do not covet. It gives these as examples of loving your neighbor. It's easy to understand how thou shalt not kill is an example of loving your neighbor. It's easy to see love in thou shalt not steal. But it goes on to say all the commandments, all of them, if there be any other commandment, are examples of what it means to love your neighbor. Just as Jesus said back in Matthew, all the laws are built under these two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. That means the food laws are examples of loving your neighbor. That means the feast days are an example of loving your neighbor. 
all the law is an example of loving your neighbor. Now, while it's easy to understand that if you love your neighbor, you won't kill him, or that if you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him or lie to him, it remains a little harder for us to understand the connection between loving our neighbor and honoring the Sabbath. But that's what the law teaches. That's another thing we should do if we love our neighbor. The law teaches us that if we love God, if we love our neighbor, we will keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not just some ceremonial law with no real purpose. The Sabbath is an example of love manifest. In Indiana, we used to have blue laws, the laws that enforced Sabbath observance, the laws that said all business had to be closed on Sunday. These existed in the United States until the 60s, when they were broadly repealed. But not every one of them was repealed. In the arguments in support of these laws, you can see at least one aspect of the love involved in keeping the Sabbath. In Indiana, it's still law that car dealers have to remain closed on Sunday. It is illegal for car dealers to sell a car on Sunday in Indiana. The reason is that small car dealers want the restriction. When blue laws were being repealed, car dealers realized that if their competition were open on Sunday, in order to remain competitive, all dealers would have to stay open on Sunday. Small dealerships, which don't have the staff to rotate, would end up either working their staff to death or being run out of business if they closed on Sunday. When you choose to rest on the Sabbath, not only does it allow you to rest, it allows those around you to rest as well. When you choose to disregard the Sabbath, you're creating work for others. You're interfering with their rest whether you're a business owner or just a customer. Honoring the Sabbath is both an act of love toward God in that you're honoring his act of creation and it's an act of love toward your neighbor. You're allowing him to rest. Thus, keeping the Sabbath is love toward God and love toward our neighbor. Now, that might seem like a minor point I'm trying to make. What's the big deal? Jesus said the law hangs on love, so it does. The modern church doesn't make the connection, but the modern church isn't very attached to the idea of loving your neighbor. It doesn't connect the law to this love, but it still believes in love. So what's the big deal? As long as we love our neighbor, what's the difference? The problem is this. Without the law, relying on only human understanding, it can be quite easy to miss what love actually is supposed to look like. The law teaches us things about love that our own human understanding never will. That's why we need the law. It teaches us things human understanding misses. Do you think the modern church sees love in holy days? They don't, but it's there. Do you think they see love in the food laws? Jesus tells us it's there, even though they don't see that. Do you think the modern church sees love in the laws against homosexuality or love throughout the Mosaic law? They often don't, and because they don't, they fail to learn what the law has to teach. They fail to learn what love actually is. Jesus says all the law is built on love, on loving God and loving your neighbor. The holy days, the food laws, all the law. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The modern church doesn't see that. They don't believe that. If the modern church actually believed that, 
they would not then discard the law as they do. Can you imagine saying the law is love and God did away with the law of love? Ultimately, that's what the modern church is saying. Jesus says all the law hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor while the modern church says that was tossed away. The law contains many examples of love that the modern church has thrown away. If you understand the purpose of God's law to bring us to Christ by teaching us what it means to love our neighbor, if you understand that fact about God's law, you would never go where the modern church has gone. You would never think of God's law as done away. You would never think of God's law as oppressive. God's law is simply examples of what it means to love our neighbor. This lesson is continued in the next issue of The Watchman.